Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone and let me listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Billy Joel for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone podcast before we get rolling. I want to invite everyone to join our Facebook group. It's got like 1,300 people. We mostly stick to wrestling, but sometimes we stick to other stuff like football, baseball, whatever, music, you name it. Also, you want to follow me on Twitter? Just put in the words John McAdam, hit search, and follow the guy who is Don Morocco and Moondog Maine fighting with chairs in his avatar. Let's get right back to it. I want to reintroduce Sean Heimberger to the show. To the show. Sean, thank you for coming back. Thank you for staying, actually. Uh, always a pleasure. And to make me sound good to you and Lou, since we're doing the Billy Joel theme, I just have a matter of trust in dealing with you two gentlemen. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, sir. We had planned on doing results from 40 years ago, January 1982. I asked Sean to be on the show. I gave him you know, a bunch of results here. Here's what we'll talk about. And it dawns on me the day before we were scheduled to record that a monumental show happened January 1982 that I almost forgot to talk about. Easily one of the 10 biggest shows of the year, and that's being conservative. On January 1st, 1982, in St. Louis, Missouri, there was the Sam Muchnick Retirement Show. And it drew over 19,000, almost 20,000 people, a, a sellout at the Checker Dome in St. Louis, Missouri. And it's a huge show for a lot of reasons. The biggest reason is St. Louis Wrestling went into a free fall not long after this. Yeah, I mean, I guess it just wraps up for the, the makes sense for the retirement show to wrap up for the retirement age because what is it a year or so later that McMahon is basically taking it over? Uh, McMahon it, took it over the wrestling from the say, chase, yeah, maybe at the very beginning of 1984, or it, okay, made, it might have been years. the end of 83. Yeah, I and mean, it, it, it just that quickly went from being an NWA stronghold to all WWF. Yeah, Larry Matisik and the rest of the office feuding with each other. I mean, Harry White, you know, God rest his soul, told me a story about how after Sam retired, uh, the St. Louis office, you know, Sam was very, very conservative with his wrestling. He wanted it to be a sport, just like the St. Louis Cardinals. He you know, worked in the newspaper industry at one point. And the last thing he wanted was people laughing at him because he promoted this phony garbage wrestling. And as soon as Sam retired, the, the rest of the office was like, okay, well now that Sam is out of the way, let's do the phony garbage wrestling. And the first thing they did, or one of the first things they did was they had what is now known as a dusty finish. And according to Harry, everyone got real turned off by it real quick. And the crowd got, got cut in half. You have to know your territory, and you spent all this time banking on putting money in the bank of being we are more like a real sport. Remember, we in the last show we were talking about how sometimes giveaways from wrestling that you knew what it was because real sports don't do things like that. Well, in St. Louis, they did, and all of a sudden, overnight, you start doing the silly stuff that makes no sense, and you can turn your audience off very quickly. And they did. I mean, you know, the the thing in wrestling in 1982 was Babyface loses a loser leave town match and comes back under a mask. Valets were becoming a thing uh, in St. Louis. You could not jump off the top rope. And they started they didn't do valets, but they, they pretty much what I'm saying is that they got with they started getting goofy the way, you know, the other promotions could tend to be goofy. And it, it ran the crowd off always hated the mask thing, even when I didn't know what the hell was going on. It just didn't make any sense. Well, you know, if you could take the mask off, I'll even 90 days, yeah, we'll cancel the whole thing. What's to stop him from coming back under another mask then? One that you didn't great, have to take off all over again. 
one of the greatest things in wrestling that ever happened happened in the old Southeast Championship Wrestling in 1988. Polly Dangerously is down there with Eddie Gilbert and whoever the promoter or on-screen authority authority figure threatens to uh, suspend Polly Dangerously. And Polly's like, "Fine, I'll just put on a mask and come back as the Midnight Rider." <laughs> I love it. That's great stuff. That's some good stuff worth seeking out. But anyway, Checkerdome, Bulldog Bob Brown versus uh, Jerry Brown ended as a double countout in 14 minutes. Jerry Brown was one of the Hollywood blondes with Buddy Roberts and was no longer blonde. And I mean, he was old. And we all know that Bulldog, Bulldog Bob Brown by this point was a very old wrestler. So it's almost like. It's Sam's retirement show, but they're paying a lot of homage to the guys who worked to him for him over the years. Throwing them a bone a little bit that they can get one last uh, paycheck, one last uh, goodbye to the fans. And it makes sense. There's two old guys named Brown battle it out in a uh, double count out. In there the you go. Dome, which is really not a dome. That's a misnomer, no. you know. It uh, was the I St. Heard- Louis Arena, which was built in like 1929. It was kind of dumpy from what it looks like on the outside so yeah i remember when i first heard about the checker dome through the magazines i'm like oh it's like the astrodome no it's not (laughs) anyway uh, now it's st louis but we're having a title match where i'm not sure if these titles really existed the champions uh women's nwa world tag team champions wendy richter and joyce grable defeat sandy partlow and early dawn uh two falls to one I'm a little bit surprised that St. Louis did as many women's matches as they did, but here we are. I'm surprised because I don't have any idea who Early Dawn or Sandy Partlow are. They literally could be my neighbors and I wouldn't know them. Sandy Partlow was an African-American women's wrestler, and Early Dawn, of course, was doing the the Native American gimmick. Okay. Well, good for them. (laughs) Pat O'Connor's St. Louis retirement match. Pat O'Connor defeats Bruiser Bob Sweetan in six minutes. O'Connor was ancient at this point. I want to say he was in his mid-50s, which is me calling myself ancient, so don't, don't get offended. But really, he he was always a good worker. He just did no, no longer look the part. I mean, he looked like a, a scrawny old man. And I, I love Pat O'Connor, I think he's one of the greatest workers of all time, but his peak was in the 50s and 60s, and this is 1982. Well, two quick notes. Is it just me, or maybe it's because, see, John, you're a little older than me, but not by much, a year or two, I believe. That sounds right, I'm 56. Okay, I'm 53. Is it just me, or do people now that are our age look younger than you go back and you look at a guy like we were talking about on the other show, Stan Stasiak and, and Gene Kaniski, those guys were probably in their early 50s. They looked like they were 65. And Pat mm-hmm. O'Connor, if he was 50, 55 during this match, he looked like he was 70. And people it, 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 look it, younger it, now. Yeah, I just think people age differently now. And Bob Sweetan looks every bit the awful human being that he turned out to be. He looks like your stereotypical guy that would be sitting in a bar that you would probably suspect of uh, some improprieties elsewhere. I, he just has that look to him. Yeah, he, he looks like he's seen a prison yard or two. But, but I mean, yeah, to he, your yeah, question. He looks, like he's, he looks like he's walked the line or two at Shawshank. <laughs> but uh, my theory is uh, people absolutely look younger now. And my theory is because we're not always in a room uh, that is filled with cigarette smoke, which I – I mean, when I worked in an office when I was like 19, 20 years old, I mean, people just all around you just chain smoked all day. And I think that 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 was the reason. That's a hell of a point. I've never smoked. So I'll but I'll I'll buy that because you just look at these people sit down and watch a TV show from the like I dream of genie or bewitched or something from the 60s and look at these guys that they'll say, oh, uh, General Peterson, this is my grandchild. You know, she's five. I'm thinking, five. You should be his, his great. That should be. You should be great granddad. And yeah, they, I, it just people age differently. I think it's a lot more smoking, as you said, and probably a lot more 
casual drinking. Where how many times you watch these shows and somebody just comes home and fills up a tumbler of of scotch like we would knock back of Kool Aid. Well, I've never smoked either, but when, uh, I mean, 40 years ago, I mean, I would walk into a room filled with smoke and I didn't even notice because I was so used to it. And, you know, not to talk about the Twilight Zone too much, but I mean, I remember one character being introduced as a 35-year-old. Like, this guy looks 52, 53. I know. I, I agree with you 100%. I, I may, I, sometimes I think that's because I'm that age and I'm just oblivious to it. But then I watched it. No, you're not wrong. These people do not look 50. They look like they're 65. Yeah. You know, I looked, I wanted to see if this was Pat O'Connor's, not only his St. Louis retirement match, but his overall retirement match. And my guess was, yes, this is it. No, he went on a pretty long tour of Japan after this, which really surprised me. Ah, uh, well, they must have wrote a pretty big check. Or he maybe he wanted to say goodbye. Maybe he wanted to take his wife on a tour. She wanted to see the country before it was all over. My guess is that that was his uh, retirement tour. He was a big deal in Japan. And he had one match in the AWA in 1982 against Bob Duncan. And that's the last match we have on record for Pat O'Connor. But he really was an all-time great and NWA champion. Kind of forgotten, but... He was, uh, I'm trying to think of a good comp, maybe at the Bob Backlund of his era, but a little bit, even a little bit better than Bob Backlund. Yeah. I, I, and there's, I'm kind of drawing why on earth would I, I'm, I'm having trouble getting my mind around. You'd pick Bob Duncan for to, to match with an aging Pat O'Connor, but Hey, that's Vern Gagne. Yeah. Pat O'Connor. I mean, he's kind of a, of a forgotten guy, which is kind of a shame because, you know, he was, a tremendous NWA champion, a tremendous wrestler, a, a good comp would be Jack Briscoe, quite frankly. And that, that's, that's a, a compliment. That's a high compliment. I mean, and, and a, a guy that you, uh, of his time, you could use a Pat O'Connor, but every generation has its own, uh, you can get away with things in certain eras. You couldn't get away with that today. You probably couldn't have got away with it in the Hulk Hogan era. But at that particular time, that, that's what they were looking for. Yeah, I think this was just a bit of nostalgia and a tip of the cap to O'Connor, who was a really big deal in St. Louis when he was NWA champion. Now we have a weird two-on-one handicap match. By the way, in St. Louis, if you look at old WWF handicap matches, it's two guys fighting one guy. The St. Louis handicap match was that the two-man tag team had to wrestle as a tag team, and on this night, Crusher Blackwell defeats the tag team, a really weird tag team, Ox Baker, and a very young, not hacksaw yet, Bruce Reed. That's the one that jumped out on this uh, on this card to me. Like, Ox Baker, and don't call me butch yet, Bruce Reed. I'm really having struggles getting my mind around this, that these two teamed up against Crusher Blackwell. Yeah, I mean, Baker was a big deal in St. Louis, despite not being able to get around too well. I mean, he had a a really good look. He looked fantastic in the magazines. I couldn't wait for him to come up and challenge Bruno Sammartino and Bob Backlund. And then I finally saw him in Georgia, I think in 1984. And again, you can't help but notice the guy couldn't move. Yeah, that was... uh... Everything I've seen of Ox Baker, it's not been a positive. Once the bell rings, as they say, and I'm, I'm just having trouble. I, I remember they used to, they called Reed Bruce Reed in Georgia, and I'm not sure if this was before that or after that. So I, I I'm assuming that. So I'm assuming who's the heel in this match? Is it Blackwell or is it? I mean, I or, or Baker? I, I'm. That's what I'm really struggling to get my head around. It seems so weird looking at this. I'm thinking it has to be the team of Baker and, and Reed because you would think baby faces, you know, or I don't know, like two legit baby faces wouldn't team up two on one against one guy. But then again, they did it in the AWA. So what do I know? And you do. And, and I guess the argument could be is Blackwell's 500 pounds. So, you know, two guys are. Two two normal sized men would be the same size as one Crusher Blackwell, but this is just weird on about sixteen different levels. It really is, especially 
being the 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 gravity of this show. Dewey Robertson defeats Baron Von Raschke. Um, they didn't call him Baron Von Raschke in St. Louis, just Von Raschke. Always got a, a push there. Dewey Robertson would soon become the missing link. And when I first started getting the Observer late 86, early 87, it absolutely blew my mind to make that discovery. I have to tell you, when I figured it out or heard, read about it, I don't know. I don't think I ever figured it out. They just completely different people. Dewey Robertson had a kind of like, I don't want to say, kind of like a marginally doughy look to him. And the missing link was pretty jacked. He absolutely was. I mean, Dewey Robertson went from this, uh, you know, Canadian sort of amateur wrestler gimmick to one of the craziest gimmicks I've ever seen. The guy who has a green face. And Dewey Robertson, didn't he, he had a run in mid Atlantic, I think. And he just, he just came off as this like doughy, dull mid card guy. And I, I never made the connection. He always got pushed in Toronto and he got pushed in the Sheik's promotion, but that's the only place he really got pushed. He was in the WWF for maybe three or four months in like late 87, early 78. And, you know, just another generic, like Steve Travis level guy. Well, that, that I would, that's an apt comparison. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Steve, Really, I mean, he went to Georgia, he went to Knoxville, and he never really got out of that WWF role. Here's another two kind of strange tag teams. David Von Erich and Rufus R. Jones go to a double disqualification with Harley Race and Greg Valentine. I mean, here we have three, I think, excellent wrestlers at this time in their career, and Rufus R. Jones gets thrown in the middle. One of these things don't seem like the other, doesn't it? Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. Couldn't have somebody came up with a better idea? Couldn't they have put Ox Baker in with Rufus R. Jones and let him slug it out for three minutes and let them both get counted out? I I think that would have been a much better idea than what we actually got. And I, I don't know what Rufus R. Jones looked like when he was younger. I only saw him later in his career, but he was an older guy. By this point, he put on a lot of weight. Uh, St. Louis kind of has a reputation as, oh, that was a, you know, you needed to be able to work to wrestle there. And this, this card is proof that, no, nah, you really didn't. Nah, you could get by with a few, if, if you had, uh, if you were a personality to a certain degree, you could get away with it as long as they didn't shove you to the top. Exactly. Now, a bit of an upset. Ken Patera, Missouri heavyweight champion, drops the title to Dick the Bruiser. And even in 1982, January 1st, 1982, as I sat there watching Pittsburgh and Georgia playing the Sugar Bowl, I knew Dick the Bruiser was an old man by this point. Dick the Bruiser was playing for the Bears and the Packers in the Truman administration. That's true. And Patera, who always seemed like he was younger than he was, wasn't a young guy. But there was another dead giveaway for that. I like it didn't take a lot to figure they were talking the world's most dangerous wrestler, former green Bay Packer, whatever. And then, okay, well, he really would in play for the Packers in 1954. That would be like today, pushing somebody that, you know, pushing an offensive guard that played for green Bay. Oh, uh, let's, let's, let's be like pushing Tony Mandrich and saying former green Bay Packer and having him win your major title in your territory. It would be and you'd be pulling around asking for Don Mikowski stories. That's <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it, 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 it's just weird. I mean, wrestling is always weird about stuff like that, but the Dick the Bruiser was really weird. I mean, you're, this is literally 30 years after he played in the NFL, and you're still talking about him like he was a lineman that got kicked out of the game, you know, two years ago. Yeah. I, and I, I never understood the whole Dick the Bruiser thing. Maybe at his peak, that was all well and good, but why he got the push that he did, even in the early 80s, was just bizarre. When I first started getting the magazines five years prior, Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher were AWA tag team champions, and the uh, the magazines kind of gave them the, the gimmick 
as, you know, these two middle-aged bar brawlers, which I kind of bought into, okay, but now it's it's five years later, and five years after that, Dick the Bruiser was still trying to make it work in Indianapolis. And you're beating one, at, at this time, one of the best wrestlers in the world to hold the quote-unquote the stepping stone to the world heavyweight title. You're pushing 60 years old. People would complain about Nick Bockwinkel, you know, six or seven years after this, for being 50 during the AWA run on ESPN. And Dick the Bruiser was probably 10 years older than Bockwinkle was during this. Yeah, I think you're you're just about right. We were talking about Ken Patera. He was 40 at this point. I would yeah. have never bought him as 40 years old. I was thinking early 30s. The, the, the giveaway with Patera for me was the Capital Center cards would come out. They would send a little flyer, like a four-page flyer out before each match. And he wrestled Backlund there in 1980. And they said uh, that he was a former BYU shot put champion and uh, had played on the football team. And that even at that time, I remember going to the library and checking this out. And there was your gimmick that he was much older than you'd think he was. Cause when he was doing the weightlifting thing in the Olympics, he was already, you know, 30 years old. And that was before he even got into wrestling. So the fact that Patera had the career that he did, the in-the-ring match quality, is kind of surprising for a guy that got into it so late. I mean, I know people will talk about Dallas Page and all that, but to me, you could make a real argument for a guy getting in that late, Patera might have been the best worker to ever get into wrestling at that age. That is a really good point. I've said it on the show before. I mean... January 1st, 1982, I was thinking the next time Ken Patera arrived in the WWF, he was going to, not might, was going to win the title from Backland, and he would have been a great champion. I think he'd have been a tremendous champion, and and the urban legend is that if they couldn't have lined up Billy Graham, Patera would have gotten the role as the guy to have beaten Bruno, which is why a lot of us, their matches in 77, Bruno didn't necessarily get pins on Patera because he was in the loop to possibly have that role. I, I think he'd have been terrific. And I remember watching one of the, I can't remember which one, our good friend Larry Zabisco did a one of the various DVD interviews and said that when they had Backlund, that people in the company were saying, why are you even worrying about Backlund? You could put the belt on Patera. You could either be heel Patera or babyface Patera and would have made a ton of sense and a ton of money. To me, and maybe I'm a bit of a Patera mark, so I'm going to be the first one to admit that, uh, and I'm putting my bid in right now. When he passes away and you do the Ken Patera show, I want that show. But uh, okay. he is tremendously underrated, and I will, I will die on the hill that says, for a guy that got into the game this late, for the money that he drew and the – matches that he had with people from the mid-70s until the, the jail thing. He is the best guy ever that got into wrestling at that late age. I agree with you, and like I said, I mean, there is an alternative universe where Ken Patera was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. The one part I will disagree with you with is I don't think when Patera was a babyface, in the WWF in 87, 88. Oh, that was horrible. Um, yeah, I mean, by that point, he's, what, like 47, 48 years old. It by just that wasn't... point, he's cashing a check. But I think what Larry was saying is that in 78, he's not quite 40, that he could have went babyface or he, he could have been, you could have done with Patera what you did with Graham, but you also could have done with Patera what you did, as, did with Backlund because of the Olympic background and because of, you know, the, the natural Patera, let's think, oh, I'm going to come off as a, as a mark here. This is a guy that had the amateur background, albeit not in wrestling of Backlund with the strength of Bruno that, that you, that exceeded Bruno's strength. He really could have been pushed as, the guy that had the best of both worlds. He could have done that job in 78. Now, the dark-haired Patera that got out of the Huskow, okay, well, no, no, that guy was done. By that point, that would that would not have worked. 
but I will die on that hill that they could have put the belt on a heel Patera or even a baby face Patera in 78 and it worked. I don't think they could have done a baby face Patera because even in, in the late seventies, early eighties Patera, and this is, you know, this works for him. He came across as a really naturally arrogant person. And there, there's always that old expression in wrestling. Well, the better the heel you are, the better the baby face you will be. The better the baby face you are, the better the heel you will be. And I think Patera was the exception. I think he was just, like I said, he was Ken Patera. He was who he was, and it worked as a heel. I don't think it would have worked as a baby face. Would it have? We have no way of knowing, but my guess is no. My dad told me, I remember as a kid, during, you know, it's one of the first things I remember about watching sports as a kid, actually, that Patera going into the 72 Olympics against Vasily Alexiev. And my dad said, well, you know, he said, he's making an ass out of himself. He's on T I'm four or five years old. Listen to this. He's, he's, he's making an ass out of himself. The only thing he wants to talk about is steroids. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. He's going to do this and do that. And then the guy goes out and bombs out and gets nothing. And so that kind of makes me think that he would have had trouble pulling it off personality wise, but I don't think he would have been able to be a Backlund or a Bruno or whatever outside the ring. I think maybe there's a chance if they minimized that type of thing, Hey, we're not going to send you to Roy Rogers to open up the restaurant. We're not going to send you to do a lot of personal appearances and we keep the exposure strictly to the television shows and all that. I think it would have worked, but I do think that would have been an issue. I think you're right on that, John. The more yeah, people mean, met him, the harder it would have been. Yeah, and especially, you know, I saw him on the World's Strongest Man competition. You know, he, oh, yeah. he was Ken Patera on that, too. I mean, he was what he was. But anyway, main event with special guest referee Gene Kaniski, Ric Flair defeats Dusty Rhodes two falls to one. It looks like this was a, you know, Ric Flair by pinfall and a good way, a great way to end the Sam Mushnick era in St. Louis. That was the match of its time. I mean, and, and we would get more and more of it. But uh, at least if you're going to finish it the right way, uh, and, and St. Louis was a two of three falls type town. And at that time, arguably the two biggest stars in the NWA. So what better way to send it off? I agree with you. I remember when Ric Flair first won the NWA championship. Um, I was like, wow, Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes is kind of dream match it's already it's already happened but now it's going to be the main event for the nwa title and oh yeah yeah boy did it happen over and over and over again it was special at that particular time it wouldn't be so special very soon no it would not be before i talk about the next show i want to thank wrestlingdata.com this is where we got all of these cards and so, like I said, I want to thank them for all the hard work they do they they're basically the backbone of this show now let's go to West Palm Beach Auditorium in Florida. This is January 11th, 1982. The opener is the Cuban assassin, David Sierra, over Abe Jacobs. Abe Jacobs is ancient at this point. Then we have a match that includes a Wrestling Observer Hall of Famer. Atsushi Onida versus Tim Warner goes to a 15-minute time limit draw. Onida certainly coming from a uh, humble beginnings here in the United States. Yeah. I mean, uh, going all the way to the time limit with Tim Horner, who, uh, the epitome of white meat, colorless baby face. And isn't yes. David Sierra, Bill Alfonso's brother. I don't know either way. I, I, I'm I, I believe I've, I've heard, that, heard that David Sierra is Bill Alfonso's brother or stepbrother or something along those lines. Uh, and yes, Abe Jacobs was 112 during this match. How on earth was he still wrestling at that particular time? I have no idea. My only guess is maybe he retired, moved to Florida, and they needed a body for this show. Terry Allen defeats Steve Seibert. Obviously, Terry is just at the beginning. He had wrestled a little bit in Portland and Southwest, and now he's kind of a mid-card guy in in Florida. That's not going to last much longer. Nope, he's uh, he's about to begin to get his push. Uh, and no, he's not the Minnesota Viking running back of the time. After this, he goes to uh, Mid-South, right? He went after, to Mid-South after this. And yeah, Brockton Mass's own Terry Allen, who went to Clemson. 
I did not know he's from Brockton, Mass. I did know the Clemson part. So there, there you go. Informing people about football history as well as pro wrestling. We don't just stick to wrestling. That's right. <laughs> Despite the name. All right. Eric Embry defeats Masafuchi in 14 minutes. Eric Embry was getting the little engine that could push here in Florida. I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, Eric, you know, God bless him. He had a, a great career, a, a decent enough career. But to me, he just did not have the look facially or body wise. He just didn't have the charisma for that push. Maybe Terry Allen should have been given that push. He was kind of the pest to J.J. Dillon. But and Embry was got this push in Florida and then he like disappears for a while. And then he shows up. It was Southwest with, uh, was it Ken Timms with the Hollywood Blondes? Um, no, that was 84. He was, okay, a so ba- he was Bob Sweetan's protege in Southwest Championship Wrestling. Okay, like I got you, I got you. I got you, okay. Then he kind of disappears, you don't hear anything from him, and then he pops up with the whole big uh, USWA Memphis thing. I think you're right on Eric Embry. If you're building around him as a star, you're probably destined for failure. But at the same time, in the right role, he didn't have the look of a really good white meat baby face. Like you mentioned Steve Travis earlier or Rick McGraw. Or those guys could have probably been in that role and you would have bought it a little more. But Embry had that kind of like, okay, kind of doughy and he's not overwhelmingly handsome. So the girls aren't going to get turned on by him, but yet the guys aren't going to buy it. So, I mean, it's, pro- it's, it's hard for a guy like that to, to really make it in that role. Eric Embry looked like the third Mulkey brother, and he, <laughs> he will always go down. You know what, though? He really is a kind of a historic figure in wrestling, and everyone's looking at me funny right now. Eric Embry, when he booked Memphis in 92, this predated ECW, like, doing really sleazy things, like, you know, having women rip off each other's clothes on TV and just doing hardcore angles. If you look at Memphis wrestling in like 92, 93, I mean, he was coming out with, with, uh, on one hand, this stuff was revolutionary. On the other hand, it was, uh, it was like watching Foxy boxing at a a strip club, which I've literally never done, but you know, it, 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 he really just poured some dirt on, on the wrestling business and it took, I mean, you know, ECW became ECW and then the WWF started borrowing from ECW. There's everything grows in in increments, and I guess that was the necessary step to get to those to the ECW and and then later on to the Attitude Era. So I'm with you on that. I I I knew he booked down there, but now that you say that, I hadn't really thought about that. But wasn't he the guy that had you know Miss Texas is press slamming people and and all this kind of craziness? Uh, Yeah, I do remember that. Now that you say that, thank you, Eric Embry pushed himself as the lead heartthrob babyface in world class in 1989 and somehow it worked I, i'll never understand how but enough eric Embry talk the briscoes jack and jerry defeat iron mike sharp and chang chung in nine minutes and 51 seconds i know nothing about chang chung uh, i was about to say the same thing i have no idea who chang chung is <laughs> All right, but we know the Briscoes are both, uh, we're a legendary team, and I'm sure this is a good match. Here's something I miss about pro wrestling. I go to the newsstand. Oh, there's inside wrestling. I open it up, and oh my God, David Von Erich has turned heel. One of the five most shocking heel turns through the magazines ever. It was impossible for me to think of Von Erich could be a heel, yet here we are. He has transplanted himself from Texas to Florida and is now Dory Funk Jr.'s protege, and he has to call the guy Mr. Funk. It was all wonderful. And, and I didn't get to see any of that stuff in live action, but it's, it's one of the most enjoyable things that I've enjoyed about watching older wrestling and catching up with the stuff that I read about. It is hilarious. And he is walking around with a cowboy hat with a roach, like clipped to a feather and Mr. Funk and... When I occasionally will hear, like, uh, on your board when people start, well, what was the big deal? Well, the big deal was is he was the only one of the of the Von Erich brothers that could probably pull this off and yet do so convincingly. 
And that's what made it so entertaining. And, you know, he was the best worker of them, and he proved that he could wrestle in either style. That stuff, to me, is incredibly entertaining. Mr. Funk, I, I like that. It was the only time the Von Erichs were heels in the United States. I mean, unless there's something out there that I totally know nothing about. Kerry made a, a couple of appearances, and Kerry was really good as a heel. That I know oh, that's yeah. going to surprise people, but he came across as this arrogant, dumb jock. Yeah, Spoiled, he came across as jock. the guy that everybody went to high school and hated, if you are on the athletic team. And wasn't it Flair and Butch Reed down there? And then the Von Erics are helping Flair, and Butch Reed is beating the hell out of both of them, and then throws one or both of them on onto Flair or outside the ring. It's a really cool clip. It's it's not hard to find. But uh, yes, the David Von Erich Florida stuff is priceless in gold. You watch it, and you wish there was more of it. I wish there was more of it. What happened was, if I recall correctly. Flair started getting smart with Reed. Reed smacked him around, ripped off his suit, uh, had him in his underwear, puts him in the ring above his head and throws him out of the ring where Kerry and David catch him. So here yep. we have Kerry Von Erich and Ric Flair working together. Yep. He throws him right on top of him and they catch him, but I think both of them fall down doing it. It's a really good clip and well worth looking out for. All right, David Von Erich def- uh, as Southern Heavyweight Champion defeats Mike Graham at 1755 on this night. And then what looks like the main event is a Texas death match between Killer Carl Cox and the Spoiler, managed by J.J. Dillon. Uh, Spoiler had kind of been MIA for a few years before he came back here and got a big push. And then he kind of turned around and disappeared again. I, I don't know. Uh, oh, that's right. He wound up in Georgia in 1984, but he was sort of in and out of the business. Killer Carl Cox has been turned from babyface to heel back and forth so many times. I have no idea how or why he's a babyface again, but here we are. And he's just about at the end of the line here. You don't really hear much for Carl Cox much after this. I love the spoiler. I, I, I talked on the on the last show about being the, the masked heel mark. I love the spoiler. He wasn't the greatest talker, but I love the gimmick of the claw. And I liked his mask. And he, he had the spoiler with the mask on had a more sinister look, I thought, than the other mask guys. I guess it's because he was taller and leaner. And he looked like the kind of guy that would be, hey, this, this guy could pass as a mafia hitman in a movie. He looked like a bad dude in the mask compared to some of the other masked wrestlers. You won't hear me say anything bad about the spoiler. I like the spoiler a lot. I, I thought he was good on the mic. Not, you know, never have a manager good, but good, good enough. He had that menacing presence. He was a really big muscular guy. And wait a minute. He's got his name is the spoiler. Like, that's very heelish. Yes, but yet when he wrestled at Mid-Atlantic, they wouldn't let him use the spoiler. They called him the Super Destroyer in the Mid-Atlantic. Yes, they did. And I thought that kind of took away from him a little bit. I thought, that, the, like you said, the name Spoiler, it sounded like somebody, uh, that kind of guy that would come into your neighborhood and burn your garden down and stomp away. The, the name was great, but Super Destroyer, not that it was a bad name, but there was already a guy using that, and it didn't roll off the tongue like you can just imagine Vince McMahon spitting out the name, the spoiler. It's just, uh, yes. yeah, I'm a big spoiler fan. Yeah. When he was the super destroyer in mid Atlantic, they went around having, I don't know what Wahoo McDaniel put up against the mask, but in a bunch of towns, super destroyer got unmasked as, uh, you know, they didn't call him Don Jardine, but you know, he got unmasked after the match. And I believe, and, and I'll refer to other people more knowledgeable than I, that there's was a legend that during that run that McDaniel and Jardine got into a major league fight in the locker room that is quasi-legendary in that area for behind the scenes. I have heard that story as well, but obviously they 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 got over it enough to be able to do a series, you know, around the horn in the right. Atlantic area. So, I mean, what, what can you say, guys? You, you get into fights with guys, and sometimes you just can't, especially if you have to share a locker room together every night. You got to get over it. Well, and, and once you've got money invested in an angle, you're not going to drop it because you can't get along. 
They're not going to so, let you, you know, do that. It's, that's right. Your bosses aren't going to let you do that. Oh, you guys can't get along? Well, you only got to get along for 20 minutes a night. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on to the Auditorium Arena in Denver, Colorado. This is January 16th, 1982. I had a hard time finding AWE results from this period. I'm not sure if like everyone just went on Christmas vacation, but here we are. The opener, and this sounds like a really good match. I had no idea these two had ever wrestled. Jim Brunzel and Tully Blanchard go to a 20-minute time limit draw. Yeah, I mean, that stood out to me as well, because I don't really remember Tully Blanchard being in the AWA. But, uh, yeah, that seems like it would probably have been a pretty good match to uh, get things started off with, because Jim Brunzel is a very underrated worker. Yeah, and Tully, at this point, was coming into his own. Three or four years later, they were earlier, excuse me, they were still trying to make him a baby face in San Antonio and Tully's personality that just was not going to work. And now he's doing heel work in Houston, San Antonio and in the AWA. I would have loved to see this match. Greg Gagne defeats Rene Goulet. Goulet was coming off a successful run as Sergeant Jacques Goulet in 1981 in Florida. Obviously Greg Gagne is going to go over here, but Rene Goulet, I always thought he was very, very boring in the ring. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I remember uh, right after that Florida run, he came here and was teaming with Tony Gurria for a little while, and he wore the Sergeant Jacques Goulet tights on television one time, and I was like, wow, I guess that's the same guy. It's the same guy. When you're just strictly through the magazines, you can convince yourself, well, maybe it's his brother or maybe it's whatever. But uh, I didn't think that brothers would share wrestling tights, but uh, – <laughs> He was kind of bland. I'll give you that. And this was towards the end of his career, too. So I should probably give the guy a break. Bobby Heenan defeats Buck Zumhoff by disqualification. I've said this on the show before. Even before I learned who and what Buck Zumhoff was, I could not stand this guy. I would have been cheering for Bobby Heenan so hard during this match. Well, and, and even in hindsight, you look at this guy, and he looks like the kind of guy that literally would be hanging out at kids roller rinks and looking for some 14 year old and he's 32 and he just, he just <laughs> oozes creepiness and, and let's put aside the boom box. That's playing Chuck Berry in 1982, put all that stuff aside and just take a look at this guy. When we were talking about Bob sweet well, congratulations. We beat Bob because this guy here looks like criminal offender written all over him. I just, what a creep. And that's like you said, he has that look even before, you know, any of the other stuff. You know, it wasn't even like I looked at this guy and said, okay, you know, he's he's probably into 13, 14-year-olds. But I looked at him, and I'm like, what a phony. Like, you can tell this guy doesn't care about, you know, rock and roll or anything like that. Um, my guess is he wasn't from Hawaii, but who knows. But like I said, he just permeated phoniness. Yeah, and the rock and roll that you're selecting. I mean, maybe it was Vern's idea. I mean, this was the guy that told... Paul E did not mention uh, the name John Bon Jovi. Why couldn't you have said Jerry Vale? He's from New Jersey too. Uh, so maybe yep. the the initial gimmick could have been Vern as far as the playing the quote unquote rock and roll that was thirty years old, but it still came across really really phony. I have a new Vern story. We're going to interrupt the results so I can tell you guys my new Vern story. You ready for this? This is crazy. And I got this from a credible source, okay? So I believe this story to be true. 1986, Vern is actually 85, 86. Vern is on ESPN. Now, ESPN isn't what it is now, okay? But it's still a national cable outlet, right? Vern is also recording his TV at the showboat in Las Vegas. So, you know, it looks good. He's in a ballroom. He's got professional production. You know, things are going well. And someone, you know, mentions to Vern, well, you, you know, your TV looks really good. It's, you know, it's at the, the showroom. It's got, you know, good production. And Vern says, I, I don't know. I don't have cable. Well, he did live on that big mansion out on the lake that Greg Gagne is always talking about. They, they probably hadn't wired it out there yet. But uh, right. I mean, I, I don't I, mean, I don't doubt that he doesn't have cable. 
But he I, doesn't I just, even watch his own television show. Uh, you know what? I can't explain that. I, I don't have an answer for that. He doesn't know what his own television show looks like. He can't tell you about it. Here's why Vince McMahon was going to win the wrestling war, okay? If Vince McMahon were in Vern Gagne's shoes, he owned the AWA and Vern owned the WWF, and Vince was recording out in Las Vegas, Vince and his family would have moved to Las Vegas. There's no question in my mind. But instead, Vern is just like, oh, I don't watch TV. I don't care at all. <laughs> you, you know what? You're, you're being too hard on the guy. You know, no, there, was, there was a lot of Kozlowski twin wrestling matches that, that needed to be watched. I mean, There's always what? some amateur guy to come out and push. He, the guy was very involved in the Minnesota Greco-Roman wrestling community. Damn it, Johnny had other things to do. And he had a mansion on the lake, and I get that. But last thing I knew, these things had electricity. And if you want to buy a VCR and, and watch your own television <laughs> yes. show. Even if you're not wired for cable, you, if you can afford a mansion, you can afford a VCR. Well, maybe he was like Hayden Fox. It was Minnesota. Maybe it was like Hayden Fox's like in coach you know the the old tv show maybe he was out by the lake and and they just didn't have that stuff out there then i'm really stretching to try to come with some (laughs) kind of credible some kind of thought that makes sense of not watching your own television show i mean i don't know what to say if he was that disinterested in late 85 86 etc for heaven's sake sell the promotion for whatever you can get for it, or just stop doing it. My God. There was one time when they were on ESPN, they put an address up for the Minnesota Boxing and Wrestling Club. And I was in high school, so I would like, my hobby at the time is I'd write different teams' letters, and they would send you schedules and pictures and all that kind of stuff. So I I dropped them a line and wrote and asked for whatever information they wanted to send me. And you know what I got back? I got back a small, uh, like a smaller version of a manila envelope with it stamped on there with a photocopied picture of Vern Gagne. And on the back said, next time, write ESPN. (laughs) Do you still have this? Uh, Probably in my attic somewhere. If I ever stumble upon it, I will certainly post it in the group. Thank you very much. I would love to see that. Don't don't go out of your way, but I would love to see that. All right. Enough digression from me. Match number four. Sheik Adnan El Casey defeats Baron Von Raschka. Um, I've told this story before of me being 16, 17 years old, staring at a picture of Adnan El Casey and comparing it to old pictures of Billy White Wolf and just being like, oh, I don't believe this. Another pretty much guaranteed expose of the wrestling business. And you know what? I survived it as a fan. I wasn't like, you know, all right, I'm tearing up this magazine and that's the end. You just come, you just say to yourself, okay, well, I, I learned, I, you know, the wrestling business isn't on the up and up from day one. It just goes through like different it, layers. If, if you like wrestling, you just learn that there are things that you have to live with. Yep. Good way to put it. There are things that even when you're a kid and you were learning wrestling at that age, you learned that in order to justify, suspend your belief, whatever, there are just things that just don't make sense in real athletics that these people do. And therefore, you have to understand how an Iraqi, Iranian, whichever country Mr. Al-Casey was from, uh, Olympic-level wrestler became a Native American and then returned to become a wealthy oil sheik. It's just kind of commonplace in pro wrestling. You just learn to go with the flow. Exactly. And, you, you and if you can't go it, with the flow, you shouldn't watch this stuff because it's going to drive you nuts. Yeah. And, and you know what? I say the same thing today. A lot of people don't like this. Pro wrestling is its own universe where you know, the, the WWE, yes, these people are talking in front of the camera like they don't know the camera is there. And that's just the way it was. Just the same way as when you whip a guy into the ropes and somehow he bounces back and won't defend himself. Yes, there are just things about it that you have to say, if you can't live with it, don't watch it. Because it will. if you're, a, if you're the type of person, well, why is that? Well, why is Then you're just going to drive yourself crazy and you can't enjoy it. Don't even bother. 
Uh, I agree with you there. The Black and Blue Express, which I really like that name. I'm sorry it was never used again. Defeat the team of Tito Santana and Hulk Hogan. Big upset for the Black and Blue Express. Yeah, I would say so. They kind of, if this was in Japan, you would say you pretty much guarantee who was losing the fall in this one. Uh, or anywhere even else. Though Santana was a big star. He wasn't probably on the level of Hogan or Patera, although probably Bobby Duncan, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's that's a surprising result to me. I, I and, and especially that it doesn't read that it was by DQ or count out that it was a apparently a pinfall. So that is a surprising result. I have nothing but praise for sites like the history of WWE.com and WrestlingData.com. But not everything on there, they do their best, but not everything on there is going to be 100% perfect. Uh, like we talked about last week, the uh, the Boston Garden show not being in that order, or maybe, you know, it, it doesn't even say it's a pinfall, was, but, you know, it, it leads us to believe that it does. But, I mean, these guys are doing their best. They're going through, you know, old newspaper columns. So, I like I said, nothing but respect for those sites. Um all right, we're going to wrap up this week's Stick to Wrestling at a show in Lake Charles, Louisiana at the Lake Charles Civic Center. Mid-South Wrestling is another promotion that I could not find a lot of results from from this era, but we'll start off with the bounty hunter, Jerry Novak, defeating Frank Monty. Sean, I don't know if you've ever seen Frank Monty. To me, he looked a lot more pushable than he was. You know what? I've been trying to think about, you know, the name rings a lot of bells, but right off the top of my head, I can't say that I'm familiar with him. Okay, he was uh, he had a good physique, which you know definitely for 1982, which you think would get him at least to the middle of the card somewhere. But no, he loses to the bounty hunter Jerry Novak in the opener. Next up, we have Bob Orton Jr. versus Mr. Olympia, ending in a draw. Little bit of a surprise because uh, in February, Bob Orton Jr. would debut in the WWF, and Mr. Olympia is getting a big push here using the sleeper as his finisher. Really liked Mr. Olympia. And I, again, back to the mask thing, but once they took the mask off, the illusion was gone. And isn't that, doesn't that sound stupid? But only in wrestling does that make sense. Mr. Olympia, I love. Jerry Stubbs, not so much. It but totally in wrestling, makes it makes sense. sense. It totally if you makes said that, sense. If you, if you say that about any other sport, it would be like, what the hell are you talking about? But in wrestling, it makes sense. It's the same guy, but it's not the same guy. And uh, Mr. Olympia, I've always thought, could have been a much bigger star if he would have been willing to go on. He pretty much just wrestled in the same places. Mid-South, uh, Continental, and didn't he, he had a little stint in Georgia, I think. He was in Florida but, at one point. Yeah, Florida, Florida. Uh, I but I real the mask was really great, and I loved his mid south where he where he did the uh, ninety day where he lost and took the ninety day heat, and then he came back. Uh, that was great stuff. An underrated talker on the mic, and then he became Jerry Stubbs, and it was like, really, okay. And it's it's like I said, it's only in wrestling does that make sense, but. To me, loved Mr. Olympia. Jerry Stubbs was boring. I'm going to disagree with you there because I'll tell you where. There were Sweet Brown Sugar with the mask versus Skip Young. I mean, Sweet Brown Sugar looked like a superhero. Skip Young didn't. And Skip Young was a great athlete. You could see that even without the mask. Right. Mr. Olympia with the mask covered up Jerry Stubbs' lack of physical charisma. I mean, you know, his hairline was receding. He didn't have that star look, but when you put the mask on, it covers all that. Yep. And here's where else I respectfully disagree. Who who would you rather have, Catfish Hunter or Jim Hunter? Oh, I I I I, I loved Mr. Olympia. I think you're Mr. Misunderstanding me. I I loved Mr. Olympia. Oh, I was... I know what you're saying. What probably hurt me more than anything with Jerry Stubbs was, ironically, when he was in Continental feuding with a pre-Crockett Arn Anderson, Arn Anderson kept calling him Pinhead. And I, it was so accurate that I just kept hitting me. It, it took the, the attribute that made you focus on that 
and you started focusing on the fact that this guy was balding and lacked charisma and kind of looked like a pinhead, you started focusing on that instead of the fact that this guy was a pretty damn good wrestler. Jerry Stubbs did an interview when he was in Continental, when Eddie Gilbert was the booker, and it was a great interview. He comes out as Jerry Stubbs, and then he pulls out the Mr. Olympia mask, and he's like, I'm a different guy when I've got this mask on. But my point was that this goes to other sports, too. Like, Mr. Olympia was was more marketable than Jerry Stubbs. Catfish Hunter was more marketable than Jim Hunter. Goose Gossage was more marketable than, I don't even remember his first name for real, Rich Gossage. Rich. Yeah. Rich. So it's, it's the same guy, but you're more pushable, more marketable. With, well, that, with makes, that, that makes sense, but 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 what I don't understand is is he was Mr. Olympia and then gave it up to be Jerry Stubbs. I, I wonder why that decision was made. That is a good question. I'm not entirely sure, but you're right. Once you're Mr. Olympia, don't go back to being Jerry Stubbs. All right, Bob Roop defeats Jesse Barr, and another Jesse Barr, another guy who missed the Olympics allegedly. Right. Um, Jesse right. Barr, I always thought he had more potential than what he eventually became. I, I actually think that's a, a pretty common opinion, but I, I do think that. And, I mean, when you peak as Jimmy Jack Funk, you know, Dory Funk's weird brother as just another tag team in the WWF, it's a little bit disappointing. Yeah, I, I kind of like Jesse Barr. I, 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 I liked him when he was in... Uh... Memphis with a young Cornette. I, I yes. liked Jesse Barr. I mean, I don't think he was a guy that was ever going to be a top, top heel, but he was a guy that could be a your temporary top heel in, in a territory. He was a guy that was pushable, and he was, was good in the ring. You know, he, he kind of had a little bit of a dopey look to him, but yeah. not a terribly – I mean, you could do some things with Jesse Barr. I don't think he could have been pushed as your top guy, but you could – you could got certainly could have gotten more mileage out of him than it seems like a lot of them did. You know, as the words, I thought he was underrated. They could have done more with him coming out of my mouth. I think back to when they pushed him as the lead heel in Florida. This was like late 84, early 85. And I was just like, you know what? Either he's not there yet or he's never going to get there. I he 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 stood out to me as someone who just wasn't worthy of that spot, and I like Jesse Barr, but what, wasn't I, that the time that Rick Rude was around? Was there at the same time? Uh, it was right before Rick Rude got there. Okay, because I, I thought it was it was pretty similar. Yeah, th- that's that was probably a reach, but he probably would have been real good as maybe like the secondary heel. Yeah, I, I've always wondered about this, and I and Jeff Bowden's not here. If you were a fan of Florida wrestling. Which was the more prestigious title, the Florida title or the Southern title? Because on the on the surface, you would think the Southern title would be more prestigious. It co- in theory, it covers more territory. But a lot of times, I'll hear people talk and I'll read things that it was actually the Florida title that was the more highly thought of the two. One thing Florida did that I never liked, and Florida, you know, Eddie Graham was so attention to detail oriented. He would always be bringing in new titles, like as the top title. One day it would be the Southern title, then it would be the North American title, then it would be the international title. You needed to be consistent with what your top title was. It felt like they just kept changing the name of it, and I thought that that didn't work out very well. And the Florida title was uh, the main, you know, the one that that stayed. So you know. The the Southern title was the bigger title, but like I said, they they just kept it felt like they just kept farting around with the title with the the, the name of it. There you go. Well, that makes sense to me. All right. Next up is Paul Orndorff defeats Mr. Wrestling Two. Uh, Paul Orndorff was the lead heel in the promotion at this point. Uh, Mr. Wrestling Two, I think, was wrestling part time in Mid South. He was more of a Georgia guy, but Paul Orndorff, I mean. You know, he was not yet a national name, but that was not going to, you know, and one reason is because Mid-South didn't get a lot of attention from the aftermags, but this was not going to last much longer. Paul Orndorff would soon uh, become a babyface on WTBS. 
and he looked like a superstar. I was just thinking that, John, is like, wonder if it was a possibility if this was a Mr. Wrestling 2 coming to Mid-South to kill two birds with one stone to put over Mid-South's top heel, but also on a scouting assignment to see if this guy's ready for national exposure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, if Mr. Wrestling 2, if, if that was really Johnny Walker's role. I mean, my understanding is that, I mean, Ole was booking both Mid-Atlantic and Georgia at this point. And my understanding is that uh, Mr. Wrestling 2 and Ole Anderson didn't really get along all that well. Well, who doesn't get along with Ole Anderson? And who doesn't get along with Johnny Walker? A lot of people yeah. did not like him. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, t- two, two uh, gentlemen that have been the best described as crusty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and by this point, even the mask wasn't hiding the fact that Mr. Wrestling 2 was getting kind of old. When the wrinkles are coming through the mask, that's a, that's a tip-off. <laughs> All right. I always liked him. I thought he was, I liked his interviews, thought he was a great kick-ass baby face and was one of the best heels I've ever laid eyes on. Uh, the Wild Samoans, Afa and Sika, defeat Junkyard Dog and Mike George. I'm not sure why Mike George was getting such a big push at this point as JYD's regular tag team partner. only thing I can think of with Mike George is he had to have known somebody. He got pushes in Mid-South that he got nowhere else other than central states. And that leads me to think that somebody in the office, whether it's Bill Watts or Grizzly Smith or whomever, somebody in that office liked Mike George. Cause if you remember right after they turned to the UWF, Mike George shows up and he starts getting a minor push uh, right after Slater and those guys leave. It, he was, it doesn't last long. It's only a couple months, but he's all of a sudden on TV and he's like a getting a mid card push and then he disappears. And he came back in 87 and I noticed he was really overweight. He did not look the part, but he was a good worker. Yeah, he was, he was kind of like we described earlier on with like the Tim Horner types just on the heel side, kind of colorless, solid, but unspectacular would give you a good match, but was not going to be somebody that you could run with in the territory as your star. But the kind of guy that at that particular time, having a couple guys like that on your roster increased your versatility. Yes. And, you know, like I said, when he came back in 87, he was strictly, yeah, actually he got a win or two on TV, but yeah, it was a yeah, good I, he was, I think he was with Jack Victory, if I remember right. Because I remember, uh, I seem to remember something they rolled him out and he was in the ring and he did an interview with somebody and they stuck the mic in front of his face and he said, well, I'll do my job. And that was pretty much the end of it. (laughs) All right. The Samoans kind of a weird tag team. They got their first break in the WWF in late 1979. A lot of the tag teams that went through the WWF, I mean, they, they showed up and they were never a tag team again, like the Yukon Lumberjacks. You know, once they were gone from the WWF, that was it. The Masked Executioners, the Moondogs remained together, but I, I, I don't know where. I, they might have been in Memphis at this point. And yeah, the Samoans continue on as a tag team. They would soon be in Georgia and back in the WWF. Kind of a family thing. And, and they, they fit together. Where yes, the Yukon Lumberjacks, they didn't look like... They should be together. And the executioners, like we talked on the other show, you could get anybody in masks to stand beside each other. I mean, but the Samoans looked right visually. You could buy them. Where the moon dogs is like, okay. Yeah. Not so much. <laughs> no. But the they... Samoans you could buy that as legitimate tough guys, and you could buy them that their looks were similar. You could buy the Samoans. A lot of the other WWF champions of Lou Albano were kind of like you would look at them with a, a bit askew, so to speak. Yeah, that, that's a good way of looking at it. And you're right. I mean, they looked like these really thick, really tough guys. And finally, the main event, which I absolutely would have paid to see January 1982. Ted DiBiase defeats the Iron Sheik. Uh, they had some good matches in 1979 in the WWF. Yes, yes, very good matches. And the young Iron Sheik, before he started to get the pot belly, before he even got to the title Iron Sheik, 
boy, he he was really entertaining and could really go. Not that he was bad when he got the belly, but you look at 79-80 Hussein Arab, that was a tremendous performer. It really was. I mean, rarely would there be a good match on the old, you know, 1979-1980 WWF TV, but you know, Sheik delivered a couple uh, DiBiase delivered a couple. He had a, a really good match against Jerry Valiant on TV when he was like the, the, the when he, the North American champion. I think by this point he had dropped the title to Pat Patterson. He, okay. he had good matches on TV with Pat Patterson, or one good match. And and I don't have this is like on the topic, but a little off the topic. If somebody out there can answer this for me, I would love to hear it. I remember distinctly a cover, and I don't even think I bought the magazine. An Inside Wrestling. Of a bloody Hussein Arab against a bloody Ivan Koloff in the Mid-Atlantic. And I've never seen any clips of the feud or the matches or how it started or anything like that. or what. But I've just always been intrigued with it 40 years later. Why I saw this cover, but yet I've never seen him wrestle. I've never seen (laughs) It's just like one of those things. So if anybody out there can help me understand why this happened and what it did, you know, drop me a line. I remember walking into the store, seeing that magazine and being completely confused because you've got two foreign heels beating the crap out of each other. It was an extremely bloody cover of Inside Wrestling. I believe it was May, the May 1981 issue. But yeah, if anyone from our little Facebook group who watched Mid-Atlantic Wrestling in late 80, early 1981 could tell us what was going on with there, we would really appreciate it. Sean, thank you for taking us on a two-week-long nostalgia trip from January 1982. I can't believe it's been 40 years. Oh, gosh, it makes you feel old, doesn't it? It really does. Well, you know what? <laughs> kind of not really, because in 1986, I was like, oh, my God, 1982 was so long ago. So I, I'm used to saying it, but 40 years, man, it really is a long time. I look at it like this. It really is a state of mind, and I think as far as maturity goes, I'm right now maybe hitting my teenage year, so we're pretty good. (laughs) All right. You're doing about as well as I am, and thank you again, Sean, and I want to thank our producer, Lightning Lou Kippelman, for all of the great work that he does, and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.